1945, a very nervous young Lutheran pastor named Henry Gorek was nominated as chaplain to Nazi war criminals being held in Nuremberg prison for trial. These men were now all that remained of a Reich, a human empire that was meant to have lasted for a thousand years. Gorek had been in spiritual agony over whether to accept this task. You can imagine how intimidating it must have seemed, but accept it, he did. And he wrote that even men like this must know of the Saviour bleeding, suffering and dying on the cross for them. And so as he commenced his ministry, various responses, as you might expect, some, such as Albert Speer, responded. Others, like Ribbentrop, were disdainful at first, but changed their minds as the end loomed. And Ribbentrop prayed a prayer of repentance that Gorek felt was sincere. And he said to him, I will see you again one day before going to his execution. Others, such as Hess, simply said that they would take their chances. And likewise, Hermann Goring, even knowing that his own daughter was praying for him to receive Christ as Saviour and Lord, could not move him. And so, their illusions of an everlasting Nazi empire shattered. These men had rightly faced human judgment for their actions and had also been forced to consider the uh, um, eternal judgment that we see in Daniel's vision. Judgment by the one whose kingdom alone will never be destroyed. And some of them had accepted God's mercy, others had not. And so we find Daniel then in the middle part of a vision in which he's seen four terrifying and bizarre creatures which represent different human kingdoms following on from each other. And these stretch from Daniel's own time to the time of Jesus and beyond. He sees a lion with eagle's wings, usually taken to mean Babylon, which had statues of winged lions, with the removal of its wings perhaps referring to the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. The bear is often seen as being Persia, which smashes Babylon, and the leopard Greece, which then conquers historically in its turn. And finally, there's a more horrific creature with ten horns, which then sprouts the little horn, which we see in verse 11. This is normally taken to mean the Roman Empire and the ten horns, the aftermath of this, which is taken in various ways to mean kingdoms of Europe, the Holy Roman Empire, barbarian tribes that bring Rome down, many other interpretations of this too. But all of these creatures represent human kingdoms which, like the Nazi regime, seemed all-powerful for a while, terrified the world, but in the end were gone. And it's in a striking and pointed contrast to this then that Daniel's vision shifts to a picture of God's final judgment. Because in the end, this is the only eternal kingdom, the only eternal and final arbiter. In verse 9, as Daniel looks on in awe, thrones are set in place. 
The Ancient of Days takes his seat. His clothing, we're told, is as white as snow, his hair like the whitest wool. In contrast to these transient and disintegrated human empires, he has always been there, untroubled by their brief power and rage, and in his agelessness is not the frailty, the forgetfulness, the bodily breakdown of human old age but timeless strength and wisdom. This is God the Father, and like John's vision of the glorified Christ in Revelation chapter 1, or like Isaiah's visions, what we see here is a very startled human, desperately trying, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to put a vision of the absolute purity and eternity of God into human words. We may remember as well in the story of the transfiguration how the face and robes of Jesus shine just for a moment in that same way. But as awe-inspiring as this purity is, what does it mean for us? I wonder if Daniel perhaps was aware of some words from Isaiah. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In the book of Revelation, we see Christian martyrs also clothed in white robes. And in chapter 3 of that book, in one of the letters to the churches, John is commanded to write, You have a few in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. And he who overcomes, that's all of us if we stay constant in our faith, will like them be dressed in white, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life, the book that Daniel sees. And so the amazing transaction that God has given us is to dress us like this, to trade the pure vision of eternity that Daniel sees for our impurity. And verse 10, showing us Daniel's vision of God's throne flaming with fire, wheels on fire sending out a river of flame, tells us why we need to value that transaction so highly and respond to it so diligently. And if we've never accepted him as saviour and lord to perhaps begin to do so. For this is the purifying fire of his final judgment. This is the God whose fiery wrath is judging sin, but also the God who has given anyone who will listen the lifeline to escape that judgment. Thousands upon thousands attend him, angels no doubt we're told, and 10,000 times 10,000 stand before him. Human souls waiting. And then God's court is in session. Books are opened. Both Daniel and Revelation refer more than once to the books in which everybody's deeds are recorded. The Lamb's Book of Life. The names of those who will enter heaven. And then, in the midst of all this, verse 11 pauses to tell us something odd about Daniel. It tells us that he kept watching not because of the vast glory of God before him, 
but because of the little horn's nagging words. Later in the chapter after our passage, it tells us how much he desperately wants to understand this fourth creature. Now, in one sense, we may well say fair enough when he's being shown something that's so enigmatic and weird and terrifying, yet obviously hugely important. But in another, in this moment, he's more focused on the monsters than he is on God. More anxious about the troubles and the words of doubt than the glory that's been shown him. So here's the question. How many times have we let life's troubles take our eyes off God's glory. Whoever or whatever this little horn represents, and we'll think about this in a moment, what's clear is that it stands for everything in this world that speaks against God. The Anglican theologian N.T. Wright says this, The prophetic witness of Daniel is that the Ancient of Days, the Sovereign God himself, defeats the monsters that are symbolic of the great imperial regimes. There is one like a human being who is rescued, vindicated, installed in kingly power. This is the Son of Man who we're about to see. This is the true and legitimate hero, and he is the one given dominion and honour and power. With Christian hindsight, we know this to be true. However, he goes on to say, we still get distracted by troubles, by the glittering adverts and toys of this world, by the allure to be most impressed by things other than God. We fall prey to granting our allegiance to human structures of power over and against the powerful kingdom of God. And so he ends with this question. Why and how do we lose our focus on the ultimate signpost, Jesus? You and I will both have our own answers to that question, won't we? So we can't be glib about people's circumstances, but what might there be that you or I are struggling with that seems more powerful, more attractive, more enduring than God's eternal power, truth, the inheritance that we have in him. Will you and I ultimately trust more in this world's passing voices, peer pressures, trends, powers? Or in the eternal Father, whose Son fulfilled his promise to conquer death for us, who has ascended into heaven, who hears our prayers, intercedes for us, and who's coming again. And so, after seeing the beast's destruction, in verse 12, Daniel is given a vision of Jesus. Just before his ascension, Jesus told his followers that all power and authority had been given to him. We can see this here, and we also see him coming on the clouds of heaven, something that he says will mark his return. 
worshipped by all nations and tongues, his dominion eternal, in stark contrast to the human empires represented by the creatures, and in contrast also to every human empire or dominion or whim or pattern of thought that ever has been or will be. It's from Daniel that Jesus takes his title, Son of Man, and the Son of Man we see here is the same Son of Man who stood with Daniel in the lion's den, stood with the Israelites in the fiery furnace, and who stands with us now in all that we go through too. Will we then, in confidence and love and gratitude, seek him and commit our circumstances to him? After Jesus has ascended into heaven, his followers are told by an angel that they will see him return just as he has gone. And then they're left to wait for the coming of the Spirit that the church remembers at Pentecost. And so in Daniel 7, we've seen kingdoms from during and after Bible times, the last judgment, the ascended Jesus in all his glory. And it's reminded us of the eternal quality of God's kingdom compared to ours. And we can't know, of course, when that final promise will be fulfilled, when the ascended Christ brings his kingdom in all of its fullness. In chapter 24 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus warns us that no one knows when Christ will return. That doesn't stop us from trying. The Jehovah's Witnesses have made an industry out of it for decades. And in the 1990s, there was a huge interest in eschatology. That's just the branch of theology that deals with the return of Christ in the end times. With great theological schisms over whether the rapture was before, during, or after the tribulation, and a whole glut of very cheesy films showing the Antichrist as normally coming from whichever country America happened to be at war with at that point. Um, There are signs in scripture that commentators point to. Preaching of the gospel to every nation. False prophets. Great tribulations. Signs in the heavens. Jesus is asked in Matthew 24 what the signs of his coming might be. He speaks first about the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and then a little bit about his return. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says that the end will not come without a falling away when the man of sin or perdition is revealed. Many commentators tie this in with the little horn that we've seen in our passage of Daniel. And it's often seen as the Antichrist, whether as a literal person or a type or the defining characteristic of an age that shouts against the truth of Scripture. Time will tell. But what we can be certain of is this, that however these things unfold, God's word has predicted it and the ascended Christ that we serve and trust in and have confidence in is in control of it, as he is ultimately in control of everything. And perhaps thinking about those future tribulations should remind us 
to be diligent in praying for those who are persecuted for his namesake today, that they would continue to trust in the certainty of his ascension. On the 12th of May, the Sunday Times ran an article on Asia Bibi, who has now thankfully escaped persecution for her faith, and quoted Jeremy Hunt as saying that while maybe post-colonial guilt has prevented for a while recognitions of the sufferings of many Christians, Christians are today the most persecuted faith group, and that in some places this amounts to genocide. It's good that our government have been pushed into recognising this more. Let's be praying, shall we, that they take action on behalf of those Christians who need it. Again, N.T. Wright says this, Deep within Daniel, there is a prophetic promise. Even though there is suffering, sorrow, trouble and trial, God will deliver his faithful ones He will vindicate and exalt them. The God of heaven has established his kingdom in his Messiah, who is ultimately the sovereign of the nations. So, Daniel is speaking this to his own age. His vision would have been inspirational and helpful to Jews and Christians living under Roman rule who knew that Christ had ascended, some of whom would have seen it happen, were waiting for the day of his return. And though we will probably never face what believers in some places face today, it reminds us too, doesn't it, that God can and often does intervene powerfully in our lives and our circumstances, but that even beyond that, The final promise of the ascension is that he vindicates us eternally. And so, on Ascension Sunday, we can rejoice that our ascended king intercedes for us, has sent the Holy Spirit to be our helper, that he's our great high priest in heaven, who has been where we have been, stood where we stood, been through everything that we have gone through, and that now, He prepares a place for us. And that when he returns, when his kingdom comes in all his fullness, everything will be renewed and no darkness will remain. And in the meantime, the writer Don Carson, in his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, which is a very good book on prayer, comments on some of the divisiveness caused by the rapture theories in past decades and says something very telling that in letting this calm down a bit, in people taking their eyes off an imminent fulfilment of prophecy, it was as if the baby went out with the bathwater slightly and people took their eyes off the eternal perspective that God wants us to have altogether. Jesus ends his exposition of Jerusalem's fall and his much later return in Matthew not by clarifying exactly when he will come again, but by giving us a different priority in the meantime, knowing that our master has risen and ascended, he tells us a parable where servants in charge of their master's possessions begin to grow cruel 
and lazy and wanton. And we know that as individuals we can lose focus like this and that the church institutionally has often through history been guilty of it. Only to find their master returning, not when they think they've worked it out, but when they least expect it. And so, though there are good, sound commentators who can help us navigate prophecy, and it's a good thing to look into, we remember his ascension best and prepare for that day best by, in the end, doing everything we can to stay focused on Jesus in our daily lives. In verse 10 of our passage, we saw the great books of God. And at one point during Christ's earthly ministry, his disciples are returning, excited from a great day's evangelism. The kingdom of darkness has been pushed back. People have responded to the gospel. People have been healed. The kingdom of God is going forward. But Jesus tells them, just be glad that your names are written in heaven written in those books. So as we remember the ascension today, whether that day comes soon or thousands of years in the future, that's a great thing for us to be thankful for, focused on, and joyful about also.